0: My particular role in, in the Diocese of Guildford is I, I'm part of the local ministry program team. And um, as has already been mentioned, that's something that's uh, served this church in the past. And, and we um, offer all kinds of courses for people interested in um, learning more about theology and, and mission and ministry um, in ordained ways, but also in, in lay contexts too. So um, it's my great privilege uh, to do that. But before I worked for the Diocese of Guildford, I was a, I was a pastor of, uh, in a church and also a church planter. So I love, I love the local church and, uh, and it's great to, be, great to be with you this morning. We are at the beginning, aren't we, of a, of a new year, 2024. Uh, we're also today at the beginning of a new series, looking at the big questions of life. Big questions like, why is there suffering? What about heaven and hell? What about science and faith? What about Christianity and other religions? And in some sense, what I hope to do today is to explore a sort of biblical foundation to our year and to the series that we are about to begin. Um, If you like, today is the chance to calibrate ourselves before we set off uh, on a journey. Um, This Christmas, my wife's family kindly gave us some prints to hang up in our flat. Um, so when we got home from seeing them, um, it was my chance to get the drill out, to be you know DIY king, uh, to show my, my competence. And uh, the frames, the prints, they're now hung, um, which I think deserves a round of applause. Um, but, uh, thank you very much, uh, so kind. But actually, if you were to remove the print, you would see behind the print, several holes uh, that had been drilled And then abandoned uh, because my measuring hadn't quite paid off. The lesson of Christmas 2023 measure twice, drill once. Uh, That's what I've taken home with me. And it's like that in life, isn't it? The more time we put into getting the essentials in place first, the more effective everything is that then follows. And, And today, in some sense, we're taking the measure of things, taking the measure of our faith by considering the biblical claim that God is good. God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It's a claim that might sometimes feel counterintuitive, because life isn't always good. And yet, this claim is throughout the Bible, from the very beginning of Scripture, where God creates in Genesis, God creates in God's own image, and creation is therefore good, When God tells Moses, as Moses is hiding in the cleft of a rock, I will let my goodness pass before you. We're told in the Old Testament that God is full of goodness and of truth. Nahum tells us the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. In the New Testament, Mark's gospel tells us there is no one who's good, except for God. The Bible again and again and again wants us to know that this God, this triune, loving God, is good. And if you've been in church for a long time, you might well think, well, of course God is good. I mean, what else could a God be? Surely the point of a God is to be good. But actually, in the world of the Bible, the God's that people worshipped throughout the scriptures weren't always very good at all. If you look at the ancient Near Eastern lands of the Old Testament, those gods required child sacrifice and all kinds of things that we'd probably all agree weren't very good. In the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman world, there were all kinds of capricious, mean, jealous, cruel, vengeful, even murderous or tyrannical Gods. In the world of the Bible, being a God was really about being powerful, but very little was said about how that power was to be used. But the Bible wants us to know that the Christian God is good. And this is something that we see throughout Scripture. Think for a moment of the baptism of Jesus Christ in the river. Jordan. We know, don't we, that when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, the father speaks, this is my beloved son, and the spirit descends. The spirit descends as a dove. Now this is happening in a Roman context, the context of empire, in which Roman Caesars were selected by a process of of augury by which a bird of prey would have been said to have descended from the gods onto the chosen emperor. And Jesus Christ, the true emperor, the true king, is anointed not by a bird of prey, but by a bird of peace. This good God uses power entirely differently to anything we've ever experienced before. And today we're turning to the prayer book of the Bible, to Psalm 34, and especially to verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed Is the one who takes refuge in him. Or in the message translation, open your mouth and taste, open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are those who run to him. The Psalms make repeated reference to the goodness of God. But if you've read the Psalms all the way through, you'll notice that they also refer very often to the perceived absence of God, the feeling that God has abandoned me. The sense of lament and hardship and sorrow and loss. So we can never get the idea that the goodness of God is a way to deny the reality of life. I'm sure you're going to go into this much more in the coming series. But God, in God's very goodness, takes our suffering upon himself in the crucifixion. He takes it upon himself and with his arms opened wide, absorbs the cursedness and brokenness and pain of the world. He takes it upon himself, and he takes it into himself. Last year, my wife was in hospital for a very serious operation. And perhaps you've had the experience of being in a waiting room, terrified. And I felt deep within myself, on a level that you know, had nothing to do with me, the only comfort I had was a sense that there's a God who knows what it is to suffer who's with me in this moment. The goodness of God is not a glib statement or an easy answer, but it is a key concept throughout Scripture. And in the Hebrew Bible, the first, you know, the first big chunk of the Bible, the word used for goodness is the Hebrew word tov, which refers to anything that is beautiful, desirable, agreeable, functional life-giving or morally good. Things that are amazing in their form, but also things that are sound and things that work. So two things then about God's goodness. The first that David invites us into in this psalm is that this goodness is to be shared with others. And the second thing is that this goodness is actually God's nearness to us. First thing then, this goodness is to be shared with With other people. The psalmist wants us to understand that the goodness of God is something we are to experience and then hand out to other people around us. That language in Psalm 34, verse 8 taste and see that the Lord is good is actually a deliberate reference back to the sacrificial Thanksgiving meals of the ancient Israelites in Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus. Those meals where ancient Israel would gather to give thanks for what God has done in the past. And, and, and if you think of that language, taste and see, it's experiential, it's sensory, it's using our senses, and it's also culinary, isn't it? It's actually much more like a chef saying, look what I've made, can you give it to other people as well? These meals that ancient Israel enjoyed when they gave thanks to God had two functions. The first function was to gather together to remind themselves that God has delivered them in the past and so God can be trusted. And and if we think back to the words of this psalm, we, we heard about a God who answers our prayers, a God who never ignores us, a God who responds to us, a God who's a safe place to run to in a time of need, all of those things are worth being remembered and worth being uh, recognized in our community. And that's exactly what we do when we say the creed, when we sing our favorite hymns, we remind ourselves of those truths. But secondly, the act of celebrating the meal for the ancient Israelites um, was actually also a chance for hospitality and to invite the stranger in and to draw in people who were on the margins. And this is exactly what the earliest Christians did. When you read, when you read the book of Acts and you learn about the, the history of the earliest Christians, what, what they did to, to women and to children and people who were on the margins and the poor and the neglected was incredible. It was totally countercultural. They loved people in a way that previously society had discarded or mistreated. Do you know when the early church gathered for, for, for a church service, uh, the door would be shut Maybe it was a secret gathering because they were persecuted or maybe they just wanted to you know, get on with it. They'd shut the door. And if somebody banged on the door, they were running late, they'd be told, could you go away? We're listening to the Bible. You know, get back on time next week. And, and if, if they were somebody who was really, really well-known in the community, maybe they were really powerful, they might be let in, but they'd be told, just sit down at the back. Don't make a fuss. We're listening to the Bible being preached. If somebody knocked on the door and they were poor, and they were neglected, and they were despised. The whole service stopped. The bishop, who would be on the bishop's throne at the front of the assembly, would get down and sit on the floor. The poor person would be brought to the front of church, take the seat of honor, and everything would continue. That's what the goodness of God does as we share it with other people. Interestingly, some writers believe that in in Genesis Uh, when we read about how God calls creation good, that's actually referring to, the goodness is referring to the bit within creation that can sort of self-seed. It can sort of reproduce itself. Um, It's really interesting. Listen to these words from from Genesis. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it, and that is what God calls good. In other words, what God calls good about creation is the capacity of creation to share the goodness with other people, to reproduce, to be full of life, and to be generative. My parents in their garden have a small little cluster of oak trees that are entirely self-seeded. That's what nature does, isn't it? It blows seed and it reproduces. God's goodness is not static, but it's active and it's dynamic. Secondly, though, God's goodness is in his nearness. God's goodness is in his nearness to us. God is good because God comes close to us this new year. That word "tove" evokes something beautiful or desirable or agreeable or functional or life-giving. And the life-giving closeness of Christ is central to his goodness. Remember, in the Lord's Prayer, we're encouraged to pray every day for our daily bread. Have you ever thought that's quite odd, actually? It's quite odd, isn't it? Because we're praying to an all-powerful God who presumably could give us our weekly bread, or our monthly bread, or why not annual? um, Maybe a lifetime supply of bread. And yet we're encouraged to pray, give us our daily bread Why might that be? Why might God want us to continually return again and again? Is it to remember our our weakness and our nothingness? I don't think so. I think it's because he wants to be close to us again and again and again, day by day by day. Give us our daily bread. It's that regular relationship, that day by day, as we're close to him and are fed by him, that we experience his goodness. The whole story of Scripture is the story of a God who is never at a distance but always comes close. Consider how God operates throughout the Bible, right from the very beginning in in the book of Genesis. How, How is humanity created? God breathes. God breathes life. So intimate, isn't it? That language of breath. It's not a command from a distance, but it's up close. It's personal. God, of course, comes close in the incarnation at Christmas, where God becomes one of us. And God comes so close, I think, in the crucifixion, identifying with us even in death, taking death upon himself in love. God's goodness is not ultimately then a theological concept. It's an experiential reality. Verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And in the message, I love this, He met me more than halfway. God met me more than halfway. This psalm is about God's goodness and ultimately how he comes running towards us. Like the father in the story of the prodigal son, you remember it, while the boy was still a long way off, he was seen and the father ran to him. This psalm is about how God's goodness comes close in order to be with us. After the the end of the Second World War, a German theologian called Jurgen Moltmann, who was a prisoner of war uh, in in England and in Scotland, um, did a lot of thinking about how can God be good in the midst of suffering? How can God be good when, when the world has just been ripped up by tragedy and by devastation? And he's written many, many books on the topic But one of the things that he came up with, one of the ideas, well, he didn't really come up with it, I think he rediscovered it, is that God can be good even in the midst of the worst situations because God has suffered with us. God in the Bible has drawn so close to humanity that our suffering is not incidental or irrelevant to him. It's actually been shared by him. And so God can share his goodness with us, God is drawn so close to us that our pain becomes his pain. Our sorrow, his sorrow. And ultimately, our death has become his death in order that his resurrection can be our life. Jürgen Moltmann says, God weeps with us so we may one day laugh with him. I love that beautiful reversal. Christ, Jesus Christ, who comes as the second Adam, dies and rises, that all creation might die and rise with him. So what's the goodness that the psalmist speaks of? It's God's very nature. It's God's very essence. It's God's tendency again and again and again to come close, to not leave us on our own, but to move towards us in love. So at the beginning of this new year and at the start of this series... How might we respond to this invitation of God's love? Well, just as I was preparing, I wondered if there might be two groups of people among us. I mean, I'm sure there's three or four or five, but here's two possibilities. We might be starting this new year and actually we feel like we need to ask God for help. Maybe we're relatively new to church, we're new to the idea that God could be asked for help and trusted. Or maybe we've been a Christian many, many years and God has helped us in the past, but we know right now we need to ask for help for something fresh. I love that, that old hymn. You, you, you probably know it. There is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than up in heaven. And there, are no place, there is no place where earth's failings have such kindly judgment given. And this new year, 2024, whether we need help to forgive, whether we need help to be forgiven, whether we feel like we are the wronged, or whether we feel like we are the wrongdoer, or most likely a combination of both, the goodness of God is there to meet us. So we can ask God for help. But the second thing we can do is we can think of other people with whom we might share this goodness. That generosity evoked in the idea of a meal, something that's lovely and enjoyed on, on one's own, but even lovelier when the experience can be shared. There might be people in our lives who we can invite to the table, literally or metaphorically. Friends, people we can connect with, family members, people who might even be interested in some of these big questions who we can invite to church over the coming weeks. As we taste and see the goodness of God, who else might we extend the invitation to? So may God bless us this year. And as we begin this new series, may we know God's goodness afresh in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.